Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 423 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, the first of a two-part interview, Gwyneth Lewis speaks with John Greening about the unpredictable inspiration of a self-described odd mind, the attraction of sequences and the importance of fun as a motivator, writing about her astronaut cousin and the influence of Joseph Brodsky. Gwyneth Lewis is author of eight collections of poetry in both Welsh and English. Having studied at Cambridge and undertaken research at Oxford on 18th century literary forgery, she became a journalist and producer with BBC Wales. An experienced broadcaster, she's written for television and radio. She's also composed libretti for Welsh National Opera and her Clytemnestra was commissioned by the Sherman Theatre. Her non-fiction includes Sunbathing in the Rain, a cheerful book on depression, heard on Radio 4 and winner of an award for mental health writing, and Two on a Boat, about the stresses and strains put on a marriage during a remarkable voyage in a temperamental yacht. She's now a freelance writer based in Cardiff, her native city, but has also lived in America as a graduate student at Columbia, on fellowships at Harvard and Stanford, and teaching at Princeton and in Vermont. Following Parables and Faxes in 1995, her next poetry collections in English were Zero Gravity, inspired by an astronaut cousin, and Keeping Mum. Both were Poetry Book Society recommendations, and Zero Gravity was shortlisted for the Ford Prize. These were all collected and published by Bloodaxe as Chaotic Angels in 2005. The long poem A Hospital Odyssey followed in 2010, and Sparrow Tree the year after. Recipient of many awards, notably a Gregory and a Chumley for services to poetry, the Aldborough and Roland Mathias Prizes, and the Crown at the National Eisteddfod, Gwyneth Lewis also became the very first national poet of Wales. Her words appear in Welsh and English on Cardiff's Millennium Centre, in what may well be the largest poem in the world. In 2019, she was elected Honorary Fellow of Balliol College, Oxford. Gwyneth Lewis was RLF Fellow at the University of Swansea. And here we are in Cardiff. It's lovely to be here to talk to you, It's great uh, to see you, John. Thank you. Uh, I'd like to know where and, and how writing began for you. It came out of the blue when I was about seven or eight years old. Um, and I think uh, there was, um, it was a rainy Easter holiday and I must have been unable to play outside and I decided to write a long poem. Not just, you know, a poem, but it was, for a young person, very long. It was quite a few stanzas. Uh, I thought of it as an epic and it was about the rain. Was that in Welsh or English? It was in Welsh. Right. Yes. It, it wasn't very good. But it gave me great pleasure, so um, that was the start of it. Mm. That's interesting. It started in Welsh, uh, uh, but you ended up well. You ended up writing both. I mean, we'll, well come to that in a minute. But I mean, uh, obviously, uh, it, it, it's not surprising really because mm. we speak we spoke Welsh at home um, right. yes, with yes. my parents. Yes. So I was bilingual, of course, at mm. that age. But um, Welsh is my first language, followed closely by English. Mm. Are there other writers in your family? Not that I know of, but we are descended from the Herbert family. 
good lord. Well, yes. There's, there's a couple of decent poets there. Yes, <laughs> and that is a direct line of descent. I think we share an 11th great grandfather or something, but it's demonstrated. But yeah. I mean, that's such, you, I can't claim George Herbert, obviously, although I would claim him as a love match, do you know what I mean, Absolutely. as a poet. Yes, I, know, I would um, claim <laughs> Yeah, he's one of the ultimates, isn't he? One mm. of the ultras. Do you see anything of either of the Herberts in, in, in your own work at all? Well, I mean, I am I am religious, so mm. uh, <sighs> there is that sense. But are you thinking of uh, Spig New Herbert or... No, I was thinking of the um, Herbert of something or other. I can't remember. There's, there's George Herbert and then there's Her- Herbert. Herbert of Ch- Charbery, is it? That's right, yes. Yes, yeah. I don't know his work, right, but, yeah. you know, his big new Herbert, amazing Polish poetry, yes, a poet. Yeah, yeah. So Herbert is a lucky name, isn't is it? It really, not? it really is, yes. What tends to move you to poetry, would you say? Is it, is it people, Tot- places, ideas? Totally unpredictable. Hmm. Um, I find I have quite an odd mind <laughs> in that... Subjects that I would like to write a poem about, that I think are worthy of a poem, don't come out. And ones that start with something maybe more quirky and idiosyncratic do. And I think it's really the action of words. It's not a question of willpower. It's a, it's a question of the action of words on your mind. So you have to find the right words, you know, and let two of them play together and see if there's any electricity or mm. so it is it is in a way even though there are subjects and I do believe in researching poems yes. yeah. it is an abstract art as you know yourself mm. in the sense that it's a, a musical entity primarily you called it in in the hospital obviously I think you called it a puzzle in sound which, yes. uh, which is a wonderful definition of poetry I think yes it uh, and hopefully both writer and reader come out knowing a bit more about the puzzle or having got the wordle mm, out, you mm, know. Mm. That idea of sort of poetry as a game. It comes out occasionally. Is that one about Will, Will in the Wall? Is it this sort of, sort of almost like, yes. a sort of, like a nonsense? But, but yes. This is one of the extraordinary things about your work. You, do, you seem to cover so many areas. Do you rewrite much? Do you, and do you enjoy rewriting, if you do? I've changed my, my mode of proceeding. I used to write in a very... I think it's quite an unusual way, which was that I would start at the top, Mm. I would get the first line right, and only when I got that right, I could go to the second, Mm. get the second, and then go one by one, and then never change it. It's a bit like Philip Larkin worked on that, I think. Did he? He worked steadily through. Yes. Start to finish. And, And that is a bit like knitting, and usually then if I'm stuck on line seven I would go back and look at line and quite often the problem would be not in line six but in line five Mm, mm. I have to go back and fix it Mm. but then I decided that I needed to teach myself to revise more radically and I, I felt that was limiting me to fixed patterns so now I will actually throw something down, get a draft, look at it, and I might change it quite radically. And mm. I think it's about the move to a freer verse, yes. as opposed to uh, fixed patterns. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the knitting analogy, because you actually developed that into a whole sequence, mm. quite a celebrated sequence uh, later on, didn't you? About knitting a poem. Yes, um, yes, that's right. And of course, it doesn't have to be perfect either. I mean, you you know, one tries, you try to make your knitting perfect, but it's... It's not so 
such a problem if there's little holes in it and drop stitches. Yeah. I mean, that's how people speak, isn't it? It is, yeah. Mm. It is amazing that the different approaches writers take. I mean, Simon Armitage starts with the last line I heard someone saying once. <laughs> uh-huh. So, extraordinary different approaches. Well, let's uh, think about your books in turn. I mean, Parables and Faxes was the, was, the, was the debut collection, 1995. How do you regard that now? Well, I stand by you, it. You stand by it? And you're, 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 yes, yes. yes. I give myself such a hard time when I'm preparing a manuscript mm. and editing that I, I want it I want to be able to not to be ashamed. Mm. So I, I yes I do um, uh, so far so good. Mm. Quite a few sequences in that book, aren't there? Yes. You seem to be drawn to the sequence. I do like a sequence. What is it? I, I like sequences too. But what is it that? What's the attraction of the sequence? I think I like a story, and a plot. Yes. And it doesn't have to be a uh, this happened and then that happened no. plot. Although I have done that too in mm. Hospital Odyssey, but it's a, you know ideas are stories, aren't they? Mm. So I always want to know where have I travelled from and where have I got. Mm. And I think of the whole book actually. You know, each volume as a as a, or a journey. I mean, that's a debased metaphor, but. As a whole, you know, mm. I, I, I don't think of it as a wardrobe with all my clothes in it. No. I, I want it to be an outfit in itself, yes. you know. Yes. I think the, the actual title sequence, Parables and Facts, is one of the more puzzling sequences you've, you've written. Um, oh. Can you say a bit about what, what's, what's going on in that, in that? Well, I was trying to work out how to write, and I basically thought there were two kinds of poems that I was producing. One was... A literal account of something happening. So I thought, right, that's like a fact. And then another one was telling something in terms of something else, which was a parable. So I thought, right, if I set them off both against each other, we'll see who wins. (laughs) But of course, neither really wins. They sort of combine into a third concluding position I suppose mm. but it's it's the movement from one to the other that's the the win I think yeah yeah that that was my thinking right, yeah. and even in this earlier collection we find this fruitful tension between the Welsh and the English I mean, and it's common in, in, in Welsh writers one thinks of R.S. Thomas of course mm. but um uh, Welsh espionage sequence for example ah, yes. um, do you want to say a little bit about that it seems to connect with that more recent uh, one, which we'll come on to in, in the Keeping Mum book, the, the detective story there. Yes, it does. Uh, you know, the later one is a detective, and the central figure in Welsh espionage is the spy. Mm. I just wondered what you could write about in a country where very little happened. And then, of course, it's not true that nothing happens in Wales. That's That's a fiction. But... It's a useful fiction. Um, so I thought, again, I thought I would put the spy figure where everything is of significance next to a scenario where nothing is of significance mm-hmm. or things are trivial. And I had a lot of fun with that. I mean, fun is actually a really important motivator in these poems, you know, because if I'm not enjoying it, how can anybody else be enjoying it? I quite it? agree. I yeah. quite agree. I often say that to myself. <laughs> <laughs> and every one of your books is something where, which, which brings a smile to one's face. There's also a mystical streak in you. Yeah. And uh, you said you were quite a religious person. I think one senses that just reading the word. That comes out particularly in the next book, Zero Gravity, 1998, with the, with the title sequence, 
partly about your astronaut cousin, but also a memory of your, your sister-in-law, I believe, which is a wonderful, powerful piece of writing, part space documentary, part requiem. What was your cousin's reaction to it? Well, I sent it to him for a technical check-through because it seems to me that part of one's duty as a writer is to get things right, uh, certainly in terms of vocabulary, and if you're using scientific facts. So he checked everything. But being an astronaut means that you're not very communicative emotionally. I think it's the right stuff, you know. So I think, I think I'd have known if he wasn't happy mm. about it. Mm. So you'd have to ask him, but uh, I, I think he didn't mind. Mm. And how do you look back on that sequence now? Is, it, is that, if you had to pick out one of your sequences which is the most important, would that be it? Because I think I might pick that one up. It is a good one. I knew it was good as I was writing it. Mm. But uh, I don't think of things in terms of better or worse, no. except for when you're doing a reading. And of course, and there's, you, you have to pick, it's not, again, quality. Yeah. It's actually what reads well. And mm. that sequence does read well, mm. which is always a good sign, I feel. Yes. Are there any other tests for a good poem? I mean, this is the old um, A. Houseman one about when he was shaving. He was... Something his bristles stood on end or something, didn't they? When, so I don't know. Or the Yeats talked about an audible click when a poem is just right. Is well, there anything like that you, you, you could? I feel it in my bowels. Right. Other people, I've asked other poets about where you feel. I mean, you mm. know, uh, if there's a stirring in the bowels, <laughs> I think, oh, this is good. Mm. And I've asked other poets, and they have different signs. Gwyn Thomas, a, a, a Welsh poet who is also a national poet, his muses, and I suppose it is the muse, behind him and to the left. Do you have a specific I don't think I have a location, location for my muse. No. no. <laughs> it sounds a bit like something like Philip Pullman, doesn't it? Yes, but I, it, it intrigues me. I, I, I think um, Les Murray recognised what I said, because yes. I remember asking him, hmm. and he talked about a trance. Yes. That you go into. Yes. So, you oh, yeah, know, I, I agree with that. Well, there you yeah, are, you see, yeah, you know, yeah. you're just not recognising it yes. in those terms. But yes. it is a physical thing. Yes. Yeah. But, but suddenly you can reach you, you, you reach for the bookshelves and the right book comes off it and you open the diction, it falls to the right place when you're in, the, in that in the creative flow. process. Yes, in the flow. Uh, you reach another, it's like going up a gear, isn't it? Really? Yes, it is. Poetry is a lie detector, you, you, you talk about in, in, uh, in one of your memoirs, I think. Elaborate a bit on that. Well, yes, I, it's very important to me to tell the truth as best as one can work it out, given that I think, I suppose I'll talk about myself, I have a, a, a strong capacity to deceive myself and, uh, you know, I suppose you'd, in religious terms you'd call them sins. So I think of poetry as a form of discernment. You don't have to be religious to to see it in that in that way mm-hmm. so it's it's honest speech because you're submitting your fantasies to the common medium of language which is you know you're not on your own when you're doing that and also to the whole tradition of poetry yeah. so far so i think that uh, when it doesn't work when the poem is bad it doesn't work artistically. Mm. Look at propaganda. Mm. Always bad poetry. Mm. Never good, never good poetry. Yeah. 
So somehow artistic value goes with the truth in a remarkable way, Mm. which I find thrilling. I think passage, I I took that quotation from you, you were talking about Joseph Brodsky, who who was a friend of yours, I believe. Mm. Tell us a bit about that friendship and why Brodsky was so important to you, for someone for whom truth was a life or death issue, I suspect. It was, and he paid a huge price. Mm. He was tried as a social parasite in the Soviet Union and... uh, uh, condemned to labour, hard labour, and I think he uh, had a heart problem yes. ever since then, When and then went into exile in the States where he was teaching. Yes, good Lord, if everyone could have a touchstone, he is a magnificent one, mm. in the sense that poetry was the most important thing, and he had such a formidable intelligence, but also a verve for language, not only Russian, but also English, that just made him untouchable. You know, he knew that poetry made him untouchable to tyrants. And of course, this is very much on our mind uh, at the moment with the situation in Ukraine and in Russia. Mm. I'm thinking of Russian poets and writers and journalists who are facing horrific situations and as well as Ukrainians. Yeah. Yeah. You wrote an elegy for, for Brodsky, I did, didn't yeah. you? A fine elegy. Yes, it, yeah. well, thank you. It took a bit of cheek because, you know, he's one of the greats. It takes courage because you think, oh, well, who am I to pay an elegy? But I can. I, I decided I am allowed. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. It was Brodsky. I remember him saying once that he regarded meter as a kind of sacred vessel that you, you, you carry meaning down the ages. Meter is, is something that is used with in variety and considerable versatility in, in all your books. Anything well, he, he, he said more about language and about poetry in particular, which is that it was part of human evolution. Mm, mm. And um, he always stressed that the fact that aesthetics comes before morals. Mm. And, uh, you know, the longer... I, I think I've thought about this for decades and mm. since I heard him say these things. Mm. And uh, I, the more I think about it, the the more I'm convinced he's right. Mm. Because, you know, the poets are uh, where the imaginative and moral laboratory is Mm. for all of us in this communal medium, which is language. Mm. I mean, these are high claims for poetry, but I think they can be backed Mm. up. But uh, but Yes, uh, all all that's true. But I think he he felt that the meter was the sort of like the seal on the <laughs> seal on the casket, as it were. That you had to have that, that from, from what I read. Of yes, I think uh, so. And uh, you know, because of its connection to memory, ah, that's the key. He used to make us memorize poems. Are you good at memorizing poems? Terrible. I'm useless. <laughs> Terrible. I wish I could say I, I'm not. Some some people have a facility for it. Mm. I don't. Mm. I don't know anything about the performances at the Eisteddfod, but are they done from memory? The, oh, the, yes. Well, I did, did those for years. Did and you? Then, yes. Yes, but I have a good memory for rhythm. Mm. And quite often, if I forget the words, I've got the rhythm. Mm. And that's more... That's the basic thing. Of course it is. Yes, yeah. yes. Well, Keeping Mum, 2003, the first part was adapted from a Welsh original. So mm. the, the, this is a new departure, in, in a sense, was it not? Sort of bringing the two strands yes. of your work together I don't know your Welsh work at all so I can't I can't really comment on that well I had decided I would try and translate my own book which was a an it was a detective story about who had killed the Welsh language and um, I tried I started off trying to translate it and discovered that because the two audiences are different 
I had to write a different plot because the same figures in both languages didn't mean the same things. So I moved the main character from being a detective in Welsh to being a, a psychiatrist in English. So, in fact, I started off with translating some poems and then actually went off piste and wrote a whole other poem. How did Chaotic Angels come to be the title for your selected? That's the final section of, of Keeping Mum's Chaotic Angels, isn't it? A little group of angel poems. Is that the, the growing religious side of you? Or it was from a, a, some paintings? Yes, it was a commission based on angel paintings. Mm. Uh, it was commissioned by the Festival of London. Mm. So I had my subject, but I also wanted very much not to have mushy angels, <laughs> soft focus angels. Mm. So mm. I was thinking about chaos theory mm. and about angels as a form of message, mm. but that messages don't have to be, you know, Hail Mary, you're going to have a baby, mm. uh, that it could actually be in radar signals and things like that. I just wanted to open out the, the concept. There has been a lot of mushy angel poetry in the last uh, couple of the decades. Some of it is very nice. <laughs> yes, but Rilke is to blame, I think. <laughs> yes, well, his isn't mushy. His isn't, but, it, but I think he led to quite a few. Yes, his is so strong to... that it's actually very difficult to yeah, go yeah. in that mould, yes, so I decided yes. not to even try. Yes. That was Gwyneth Lewis in conversation with John Greening. You can find out more about Gwyneth on her website at gwynethlewis.com. And that concludes episode 423, which was recorded by John Greening and produced by Kona McPhee. Coming up in episode 424, in the second part of her interview, Gwyneth Lewis tells John Greening about being the first national poet of Wales, attempting to sail from Cardiff to Brazil, and her desire always to be trying new techniques in her writing. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.uk. Thanks for listening.